Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're very honored here again to be uh, in the history Zoom room, as we call it, of, uh, of our AccessibleWorld.org. And we again welcome a very good friend and a very great presenter, uh, Edwin Cooney, who will speak to us on Richard Nixon, his rise to the presidency. If you think you're going to make any noise, you can mute, usually on the computer with an Alt-A. Um, the iPhone will have a mute lower left screen. Uh, we don't we don't want to just mute everybody except the speaker. We're, we, we're a good group here. So if you think you're making, you know, TVs are on or something, do a mute for us. Without further ado, I want to present Ed Cooney. Ed, you're on, and thank you for coming. Well, thank you, Bob. I was just um, I was just trying to turn my iPhone off. I'd forgotten all about turning my iPhone off, and, <laughs> and um, you know that you know you have to turn the um, actually actually what I did is I turned the screen curtain off. I didn't really turn off, off the speech. We might get I might have something something in the background, but it shouldn't. Oh, no, you're fine. You're good. <clears throat> My project tonight is to mark the 50th anniversary of Richard Milhouse Nixon's first inauguration. Um, I don't intend to um, glorify him, nor is it my intention to um, condemn him. Um, I'm interested in, in where he came and what his purpose was and what he did with it. <clears throat> and uh, like uh, in the lives of most of us, that's um, inconsistent sometimes, but it's part of, of human nature. Um, Richard Milhouse Nixon, as perhaps some of you are aware, was born in the evening of Thursday January the 9th, 1913, he was the second son of Frank and Hannah Milhouse Nixon. He was born in Yorba Linda, California. Now, the uh, nurse, her name was Harriet Shockley. She brought him into the world. And by the way, he weighed 11 pounds. That's a big baby. Um, he was a roly-poly, good-natured baby, according to uh, Henrietta. Um, the doctor that brought him into the world was a gentleman by the name of uh, uh, Horace Wilson. His ancestry is quite interesting. It's, it's rather revealing. Um, on his father's side, he was Scotch-Irish. On the Millhouse side, he was German, English, and Irish. His great, 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 great grandfather, James Nixon, emigrated to from Ireland to Newcastle, Delaware in 1753. His great-great-great-grandfather, George Nixon, crossed the Delaware with uh, George Washington on Christmas night, 1776. His great-grandfather, George Nixon III uh, was killed at Gettysburg during the Revolutionary War. 
From his mother's side, and this, I find this especially fascinating, <clears throat> Nixon was a direct descendant of one of um, England's um, greatest medieval kings. And that would be Edward III. Uh, perhaps somebody will want to ask me about this. Um, he ruled from 1330 to 1377. And that was, that was through his, uh, um, through Franklin Millhouse on his mother's side. He had three significant, what we call collateral relationships. Uh, the first was his second cousin, and cousin, some, perhaps some of you have, have, have heard of her. Her name was Jessamine West. She used to write novels. Um, his seventh cousin, once removed, you have definitely heard of his, he was President William Howard Taft. And his eighth cousin, once removed, there was another president, Republican president, and that was Herbert Hoover. Um, all of the uh, Nixon siblings, with the exception of um, Nixon's youngest, uh, younger son, the one, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Nixon's, the son after Richard Nixon, were named for British kings or um, princes. Uh, there was Arthur, the old, I'm sorry, it was, there was Harold, the oldest. Um, Harold was the one that lost the throne to uh, William the Conqueror in 1066. Um, and then, of course, King Richard and uh, uh, King Edward, you know, all, all of the, the King Edwards. And, of course, um, King Arthur, who, who would have um, gotten the throne instead of uh, Henry the, the, the Eighth, but he died. And, and then, of course, Henry the Eighth married his wife, and the rest is history. Uh, but anyway, so as I say, all of them, all of the, the children, with the exception of Don Nixon, and he was Francis, named after his father, Francis Donald Nixon. Um, <clears throat> his, fa his father was, a France, was Francis, they called him Frank, Anthony Nixon. He was born on Tuesday, December the 3rd of 1878 in MacArthur, Vinton County, Ohio. Uh, he eventually moved to California where he married uh, Hannah Milhouse on Thursday, uh, June the 25th, 1908. And he died just after uh, Richard Nixon's second nomination as vice president. He died on Tuesday, September the 4th of 1956. Uh, his, both of the parents' personalities really did rub off on, on, on Nixon in, in many ways. Um, Frank um, was certainly very hardworking, as, as, as was Richard, um, but he was rather quarrelsome. And he was very, very quick to anger. And I'll, I'll say more about that a little later. Uh, Frank Nixon began life as a Democrat. Uh, sometime, and I, I don't know exactly what had happened, until one time in the 1890s, right? <laughs> he, was, um, he was 
riding a horse through Columbus, Ohio, and William McKinley happened to 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 be in town, and he he saw Frank Nixon, and uh, he 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 complimented him on what a fine horse he was riding, and after that, uh, Frank Nixon was a Republican. <laughs> Uh, except for 1924, after the Teapot Dome scandals, he he, he voted for Robert La Follette, um, you know, the uh, uh, Progressive Party candidate. Uh, Frank Nixon was a was a farmhand. He was a hand. He was a house painter, and of course, he was a streetcar motorman, as, as Mr. Nixon happened to mention in his his um, farewell speech from the White House in, in 1974. He owned a lemon ranch. I don't know that um, he sold the lemon ranch uh, before they found oil on it. That's what the president said about his father. Um, he was, a, but eventually he bought a gas station in Whittier, California, and the gas station, which was connected to um, uh, Nixon's market, um, is where the Nixon, bega- Nixon family began to prosper. Just a little. That was that was in, um, as I said, that was in Whittier. Um, next, um, later in life, Frank Nixon actually bought um, a farm in York, Pennsylvania, of all places, and he named each of his cattle after movie stars. <laughs> so anyway, he 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 was quite a character. Uh, you know, Richard Nixon in his, his final farewell to the staff, the White House staff on the 9th of August, 1974, uh, you might remember, he said, my mother is a saint. Nobody will probably ever write any books about her, but she was a saint. Um, she was, of course, a dedicated Quaker. And of course, she badly wanted, um, she badly wanted her son to um, be, to become uh, a Quaker missionary, but of course, uh, eventually he, of course, he never he didn't do that, and actually he went to war, and that apparently aggrieved Anna very much. She, we don't. She was a Republican like her husband. However, she made her husband very angry in in in, uh, in 1916 when she voted for. Woodrow Wilson, because he had kept us out of World War One. So Frank was not very happy about that. Uh, Richard Nixon had four siblings. And of course, he was the second of those four, as I've already mentioned. His oldest brother was um, Harold Samuel Nixon, who was born Tuesday, the, June the 1st of 1909, and he died on his mother's birthday, um, March the 7th, 1933. Then there was Francis Donald Nixon, the only boy not named after a king. Uh, He was born Monday, November 23rd, kind of close to a significant date, I'd say, but Monday, November 23rd, 1914. Uh, Arthur, um, Arthur Burge Nixon, uh, was born on Sunday the 5th of, I'm sorry, Sunday, May the 26th of 1918, and he died um, on Monday the 10th of August, 
1925. He, um, he had a very virulent form of, of, of tuberculosis. And Hannah was, was you know, very, very, uh, she hovered over her children. She protected them as much as they can. And when they had to go to Arizona for treatment, she would go and um, uh, pay for the care her sons needed by um, uh, taking up the nursing. And she came to love the children that she nursed, as well as, of course, her own, her own uh, sons who were there. Uh, Dick used to go down there in the summertime and um, try to make a little money. He was a, <clears throat> he was a, a carnival barker. Um, he seemed to enjoy it. Of course, you know, took away from his usual work during during the winter. You know, at, at Nixon's market. Um, his youngest brother was Edward Calvert Nixon, um, who was born on May the third of nineteen thirty. He was he was the last of the Nixon's five sons. Um, now let's take, take a few minutes and talk about his education. It's quite remarkable, it really is. Um, he was a very quiet, obedient, dutifully helpful child. That's just what he was. Um, he worked in Nixon's market, getting up as early as four o'clock in the morning, and he'd take the truck and drive it into Los Angeles and um, pick up the produce that they'd need to sell that day. I don't know that one. Um, pick up the produce and of course bring it back and, and, and then he'd even wash it and prepare it uh, uh, for placement, you know, in, 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 uh, on the counters and so forth before going to school. Um, his parents came to believe that part of the reason he was so industrious, it was to make up for the losses of Harold and Arthur. He felt those losses very, very, very deeply. And, I, and, and there, there, some, some have suggested that he had kind of a guilt complex over it and he worked very hard. Um, okay, uh, let's move on to his work. As I say, he was a hardworking, serious, um, prompt student. He, he, he wouldn't be late. He, could, he would never be late. Um, his elementary education was in Yorba Linda. Then he went on to high school. Uh, for a while, he actually went to Fullerton High, which was nearby. And then in his, ju in his junior year, um, he moved he moved back to um, Whittier. Um, at Fullerton, uh, he won the constitutional oratorical contest, uh, and he represents, um, represented the West, West Coast in the national oratorical contest. Um, of course, that he won it, why we, we would be reading about it. Uh, his coach said the fascinating thing was two things. Um, he could take either side of an argument. It made a difference whether he believed it or not. He knew how he knew what 
how the other side felt and why they believed what they do, and he, and he, he, he could enunciate uh, their logic. Um, and, uh, but he had a tendency, rather than needing an argument, he had a tendency to slide around it. Um, rather than meeting it head on. He graduated from Whittier High School first in his class in 1930. Um, upon his graduation, he was, pre he was presented, I'm sorry, upon his graduation, he was presented the California Scholastic Federation Gold Seal Award for scholarship. And he also received the Harvard Award for best all around student. He was ready for college. And in the fall of 1930, he entered Whittier College. He had been accepted, apparently, from what, from what I've been able to get. He'd been accepted at both Harvard and Yale, but, but you know, with his, you know, the Nixons lived in absolute poverty, grinding poverty. Um, they could afford to send a son off to Harvard or Yale or, you know, or to do what even the, the supplementing that, that needed to be done. Uh, they, as I said, they just couldn't afford it. And at that time, Harold was in the final stages of, of um, tuberculosis. Um, he had, he was, as I say, he, he went off to, he went off to, to, um, to Whittier College and as busy as he was, he had time for extracurricular activities. Of course, he joined the debate team. He joined the, the he, he, he was, got involved in drama. He sang in the glee club. Um, he um, played second string football. Well, we're, we're told that he didn't play very much. He, he, he really wasn't fit for it, but he was actually, he had a place on the, a place on the team. He was, he was a tackle. Uh, perhaps the most significant thing that, that it's another aspect of his personality. You know, he was very, very sensitive about elitists all his life, even though, you know, in some ways he would, um, uh, he'd take the, you know, he acted, um, he voted like the rich wanted him to vote very often. You know, he's pro-business, um, pro-establishment, but he didn't like who, who, who he called, you know, people who were slick. Now there was a, there was a um, uh, sorority they were called the Franklins, uh, and a rather effete, did I say sorority? I meant fraternity, um, <laughs> a, 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 a rather elitist fraternity uh, at Whittier College. And Nixon got together a bunch of his friends, and they, they established the, Orth the Orthogonians, or straight shooters. You know, they didn't use flare jackets and ties and stuff like that. You know, they... They wore straight shirts and, and you know, they, they did things um, that people could, could afford to do. Um, 
He was in college as he had been in high school. He was uh, elected president of the of the student body um, as a senior. Uh, and he, he ran on a platform to allow dancing on campus. You know, a lot of those Quakers were very, very, very strict. Um, and they and, and a lot of them didn't go for dancing, but he actually convinced he successfully convinced the administration, <clears throat> the the college administration, that it would be much much better if the student uh, did their sock hop hopping on uh, on campus rather than going into to uh, Los Angeles on Friday and Saturday nights, uh, you know, to dance with the with uh, people that um, their parents si si simply wouldn't want them to be dancing with. Um, Nixon graduated second in his class, and it was, um, I think, I think it was a class of 85. So again, he's right up there at the top again. He entered uh, Duke University, Duke University Law School in 1934. He would remain there until 1937. Uh, he was known as, glo as Gloomy Gus. Uh, you know, he lived in a with a small group of students, they couldn't have, they really couldn't afford housing and said they got room in a cabin outside of town, had no running water, had no electricity, uh, you know, that they would shower and shave and dress in, in a, a bathrooms at the Duke University and they'd go back to the cabins at night and go to sleep. Um, and he was, he had a reputation for having an iron butt because he was studying all the time. Still, however, uh, he became president of his senior class at law school. Um, and of course, that was in 1937. Um, he, um, he was in the Order of the Coif, which is a national scholastic um, honor fraternity for, for uh, law school students. He graduated in um, he came third in his class, and that was out of a, a class of 25. It was very, very rigorous, the studying was. And so you can see that he, that he was always, always busy. Um, now let's move to his young adulthood. Um, in September 1937, he went, he'd gone home in September of 1937, he took the California bar examination and, and of course he passed the bar as a, uh, not, and passed the bar and he was admitted, uh, passed the exam and was, was admitted to the bar in November of 1937. His mother actually helped arrange his first job. You know, everybody knew everybody in, in Whittier in the rural areas. Um, north and west of, of Los Angeles. And his mother uh, knew uh, Tom Bewley. And so Bewley and Bradley um, took him on in um, late 1937. And actually, and I, I, I didn't know this until just recently, he badly bungled his first case. Um, 
and he bungled it so badly that the 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 law firm lost four thousand eight hundred dollars. And what he did, he was very naive. Uh, they'd apparently gone to court, and he, he turned to his opponent, you know, who was a much more experienced lawyer, and he asked for his advice. And uh, the, the, you know, the, the client was just furious, and he sued the law firm. Uh, of course, Buley could have dismissed him, but he didn't. Uh, and so when Nixon got other, chan other chances at, 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 at uh, practicing law, he wasn't good with divorce cases. He, he didn't like, he, he was embarrassed when women would, would talk, to him, talk to him about um, uh, difficulties they were having with their husbands, especially uh, matters of, of a sexual nature. He, he just didn't like it. He, he didn't want to do it. Um, of course, he did, and there'll be more about his reaction to women later. Um, far from firing him, in 1940, Tom Buley actually made Nixon a junior partner in a new law firm, a new law firm, it was called um, Buley, Knopp, and Nixon. Meanwhile, he became involved in the building of an orange juice company. It was called Citrafrost. And uh, they tried to uh, manufacture uh, frozen orange juice, <laughs> but they just didn't have either the capital or the equipment to succeed. In fact, Frank Nixon used to uh, <clears throat> come in uh, nights and, and you know, squeeze oranges and stuff like that. Uh, so it was a, it was a disaster. So anyway, um, the company went into bankruptcy. But, but uh, Nixon continued to work with um, Buley and Kanoff until the end of 1941. Um, I want to take just a minute and talk about the major event of 1938 in Nixon's life when he met Pat Ryan. Um, she'd just become a teacher at Whittier High School. She, ta she taught shorthand and typing. Um, and the night he met her, he proposed to her. He was absolutely smitten. And of course, she was just, wow. <laughs> and she certainly wasn't ready for it. And she turned him down. But then again, here's another aspect of the Nixon, um, of the, the Nixon personality, though. Because he was so smitten with her, he would even take her to Los Angeles from Whittier so she could date other men. I don't know anybody who ever did that, but he certainly did. Um, Pat Ryan was born in Ely, Nevada. I often say the only first lady ever born in Nevada. Born in Ely, Nevada on March the 16th of 19. 12. Um, so she's a little bit older. She's about a month or so. Uh, well, no, she's about a year. Yeah, 10 months older than older than Dick. Uh, she was um, born to William and Cape Halberstadt Ryan. Uh, her mother was from Germany, actually. Um, her father, um, her father was a Cooper. Um, 
he eventually, let's see, her mother died when she was 12 and he died when she was 17. So she, so she was pretty much on her own. And uh, she had, she had laundry all over the country by the time she took, by the time she met Dick Nixon, she'd been to New York and back. She'd worked as a, as a, as an X, as a X-ray technician. And, uh, <clears throat> He didn't discover until just before they married that her full name was Thelma Catherine Ryan. Uh, she didn't even tell him that until just, as I say, just, just, before, just before the wedding. Um, and uh, she was Pat because, you know, obviously March the 16th is, is um, day before St. Patrick's Day. And so thus she became Pat. Uh, the Nixons decided to leave Southern California in late 1941. And the reason really was that a lot of the women in town didn't like Pat Nixon that much. She wasn't one of them. These were, these were very parochial people. Um, they thought uh, Dick Nixon should have married uh, um, somebody they knew and 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 they they, they kind of considered they kind of felt that that pat was was kind of on the make um and so they they left southern california went to washington dc in fact they left right after pearl harbor they got to washington dc on his birthday in 1942 and for about the next six months he worked for the tire rationing section of the office of price administration um, he actually did quite well. He didn't like the work. Um, number one, he, he didn't like working for the government. He saw it very he, he saw it as very inefficient. He had supported Wendell Wilkie for president in 1940. He wasn't very fond of FDR. In fact, he probably wasn't fond of, fond of him at all. Um, when he first got the job, he was earning $60 a week, but by the time he left, he was working uh, $90 a week. That's a range from $3,120 to $4,680. <coughs> but he did, excuse me, but he did decide to, uh, he did decide to, to, to leave and um, join the Navy. Uh, he entered basic training um, just a second. I'm, I'm looking at. Yeah, he he went into training beginning in June of 1942, uh, and he was there I think until. Well, his full training, his full experience in the Navy, his full term, was uh, June 1942 until March of 1946. That was the the time he spent in the Navy. He rose from um, lieutenant junior grade to lieutenant commander. Uh, between June and October of 1942, he had uh, basic training at um, um, Quonset, Rhode Island. And while he was there, he met a rather distinguished person. He met William P. Rogers who would become assistant attorney general and then attorney general in the Eisenhower administration and would be uh, Richard Nixon's first secretary of state. 
from October 42 to May 43, uh, Nixon was an aide to the executive officer at the Naval Reserve Air Base at Ottumwa, Iowa. And in um, late 1943, he was shipped. He must have gone by slow boat uh, because it, supposedly he left in May, but, but he, didn't, he didn't reach where he was going until January of 1944. Um, and from January, 40, January to June of 1943, he served as um, officer in charge of South Pacific Transport Command, first at uh, Bougainville and then later at Green Island. Um, he was a good poker player, um, played with a lot of the soldiers who came in. And in fact, he came out of the, he came out of the Navy with about four or $5,000 in poker winning. So just one of his many, many talents. Uh, Nixon was actually cited for, merit uh, for meritorious and efficient performance, and this is part of what the this is part of what the um, um, citation said. This, he Nixon <clears throat> he established a, li a liaison which made possible by air of vital material, the transmission of vital material and key personnel and the um, uh, prompt evacuation of uh, battlefield casualty out of our station uh, to the rear, you know, for, for treatment. And the citation was signed by um, Vice, Admiral, Vice Admiral J. T. Newman. Um, in June of 1944, and this is kind of important to me because I lived in this town, he was actually brought back to the United States. This is just about the time of D-Day. He was coming back from the Pacific, uh, and he was signed to the Naval Air Wing Battalion at Alameda, California. I lived in Alameda, California for 34 years, so I had some, some uh, sense of connection with that. Um, in December 1944, he was assigned to the Department of Aeronautics in Washington. They, I think he and Pat actually settled in, in, um, uh, in Baltimore. And while he was away, she was a busy lady. In fact, she went back working for the government. She went back working for the, um, uh, the, the rationing office. Uh, she also worked in San Francisco. I think she worked in San Francisco. And then she went back to the rationing office. And uh, uh, so that's where they were in late 1945 when Dick Nixon got a vital phone call. Uh, it was from a gentleman by the name, <clears throat> gentleman by the name, oh, oh, of Herman Perry, and he was heading up a group of businessmen, and they were looking for a congressional candidate for 1946. Um, 
they had had enough of the New Deal. And uh, they wanted somebody young, preferably a veteran, some, you know, who spoke very well. And they called him one night in, 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 uh, in Baltimore and asked him if he'd, he'd, he'd come out for, for an interview, and he did. Uh, he didn't even own a suit at that time. He only had a uniform. And, uh, but, of course, a, suit, a, a uniform was a very good thing to wear at that time because, you know, young veterans were, were coming home at, at, you know, in big, big numbers. And uh, the committee, which also consisted of a guy by the name of Roy Day, I think he was, a, I think he had, a, I think he owned the biggest, new, or, you know, a, a major newspaper in Whittier. And uh, so he, after the interview, he went back to Baltimore and continued to work in, in, in the department. And one day he got a call, and I think the call came um, from Herman Perry, who was, again, the, the, the leading banker, even though Roy Day was actually the, apparently the, head, of the head of the group, you know, telling him that they had decided upon him to be their candidate. And then he said, you know, later he got a call from, uh, he, got a, he got a call from uh, uh, Roy Day. And of course, he was the head of the group, but he says, I want to be the, I wanted to be the first to tell you, uh, you know, that you've been chosen. Of course, he already knew it, but he mentioned that his mother had once said, if somebody thinks they're the first to tell you something, they are. Don't argue with them. Don't tell them that you'd, you know, you'd seen somebody before that you already knew. Well, Nixon went back to uh, Southern California and put on quite a campaign. Uh, things were very slow going in, in the beginning. Um, they had a lot of difficulty with money. Um, and this is the other thing about women. One of the problems he had <coughs> facing women's groups is he wouldn't look them in the eye. He just wouldn't do it. And um, it was either Roy Day or, or, or Herman Perry, one of the two, said, look, Dick, you can't do that. You do that, they'll never forget it. They'll, they'll think you're trying to hide something. You've got to look these ladies in the eye. And of course, another part of his personality was that if he, if he had to do something, he'd make himself do it. You can get back to that you know, that academic uh, discipline that, that, that he had. Um, as I say, it, at first they did, um, it was a long way up for him because uh, the 12th District of California, which is uh, territory just north and west of Los Angeles and consists of Whittier and Alhambra and places like that, um, um, had had a congressman, a very, very decent congressman, a good man. His name was Jerry Voorhees. He had been in town for, he'd been around for a long time. He'd been there, he'd been their congressman since 1936, you know, from the New Deal. And he was a good congressman. Perhaps um, one of you, if, if, if you, I'm, I'm inviting you to ask me a little bit more about it. Uh, he ran a top campaign against Voorhees. He felt he had to destroy Voorhees if he was going to win. And he had to, con and the thing of it was, he had to connect Voorhees as, close as, as closely as he could with the Communist Party. That's all there was to it. He had to do it. He knew Voorhees wasn't a communist, 
but he had to do it. He had to connect them to the um, to the uh, to the CIO and 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 to, as I say, labor unions that were in many cases pro-communist. Um, on Tuesday, November the fifth of nineteen forty-six, Nixon defeated Congressman Flores. I think approximately something like um, 69,890-some-odd votes to 49,000. That was over 56% of the vote. And of course, that was, yeah, there was 56% of the vote. And uh, he thus began representing the um, 12th District of, of California. Um, he took his oath of office on um, Wednesday, January the 3rd, 1947. And of course, he would be in, um, he would be in public office for, for the next 14 years. Uh, I think of this as the beginning of Nixon's, and you heard a lot about this, the beginning of Richard Nixon's journey for peace. Remember when he was president of the United States, there were all these medallions and everything. It was always about his journey for peace, whether it was to China or, or, or whether it was, you know, um, anywhere he went or whether it was to Moscow. Uh, I think his dream, I think he, he was in politics really for only one reason. He was interested in foreign policy. Uh, he did the other things he had to do, but his heart really wasn't in it. I remember in 1964, uh, the year that Goldwater got the nomination, and uh, somebody said, you know, you know, Nixon, if Goldwater wins, he'll probably be Secretary of State. Now, I don't, and if Goldwater didn't, didn't even come close to winning. Um, but, uh, uh, had he won, Nixon might have taken it. He loved foreign policy. Um, and so I think he got from his mother, an eminently peaceful woman. Um, Hannah Nixon didn't fight her battles uh, physically. She didn't spank her kids. Her husband did. Uh, in fact, he was pretty brutal at times, but she wouldn't touch him. You know how she'd get you when she was angry with you? Silence. She wouldn't talk to you. She was mad at you. She'd leave you alone. And knowing her as you did, you you knew her displeasure. And you couldn't talk her out of it. But it was she'd always give you the silent treatment. So as I say, on January the 3rd of 1947, Richard Nixon began on his journey for peace. And that would be the emphasis on his first in his first inaugural address, and I think it's the best speech Nixon ever made in his entire life, his first inaugural. If you haven't heard it, uh, you really ought to. And this is what he said. I'm hoping this will work. 11.06 p.m. Whoop. Beginning of title. It is my oh, I, hold on just a minute, please. Five seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. I knew that I was gonna have trouble seconds. with this, but I was hoping One I would. Two minutes. Three minutes. Oh, peacemaker. This honor. Okay, just a minute. Minus five seconds. Ten seconds. 
minus five seconds. In this, he really believed. Here we go. The greatest honor history can bestow is the title of peacemaker. This honor now beckons America. The chance to help lead the world at last out of the valley of turmoil and onto that high ground of peace that man has dreamed of since the dawn of civilization. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment, that we helped make the world safe for mankind. This is our summons to greatness. And I believe the American people are ready to answer this call. Pretty powerful statement, wouldn't you say? Well, he began that journey for peace in 1947. He was a member of the what, what Harry Truman used to call that good-for-nothing 80th Congress, you know. That was the 80th Congress that passed things such as the Taft-Hartley Law and uh, you know, be began to do what they could to, you know, strip away some of the New Deal. And Harry Truman couldn't stand them. However, Nixon, though he was, um, you know, pretty dyed-in-the-wool Republican, uh, supported uh the Truman Doctrine, you know, uh, aid to Greece and Turkey. Uh, he visited Western Europe as part of the uh, Herder Commission. You know, Christian Herder would later become the Secretary of State under the uh, under Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, after uh, John Foster Dulles died. And so, this, so but anyway, he 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 went um, with the with the um, Herder Commission back in in you know in in August and September of nineteen. Um, 47 to, to study the social condition in um, in Western Europe. So eventually he voted for the Marshall Plan. Um, this desire to bring peace was what was behind, for example, his successful investigation as a member of the American Activities Committee of Alger Hiss, uh, who was shown to have been actually a member of the Communist Party in 1938. Um, in, 1957, in 1950, he would be elected over Helen Gahagan Douglas. Um, he was elected by over 100,000 votes. That was on November the 7th of 1950. Um, and he did the same thing to, to Helen Gahagan Douglas he'd done to uh, uh, Jerry Voorhees. He connected her as closely as he could. And of course, at that time, we were involved in the Korean War. And, uh, <clears throat> but he did his, the best he could to connect her as close to the communists as he possibly could. Um, he was, <clears throat> even though he, some people would call him a conservative, the conservative wing of the Republican Party was pretty isolationist back then. And he came to realize that, you know, an isolationist uh, wasn't going to be as effective as, as, uh, uh, as it could be in, in, in striving for world peace. And so he was interested in the uh, Eisenhower campaign even before it got off the ground. In fact, uh, early in 1951, 
um, he went to dinner with Thomas E. Dewey, who was then governor of New York, and, and he had been twice nominated for president. And Dewey was very, very impressed with young Nixon. Um, he was nominated for president on um, uh, Friday, July the 10th of 1952. And he was elected vice president on Tuesday, November the 4th of 1952. Um, and of course, he was inaugurated on Tuesday, January the 20th of 1953. Uh, he, he, uh, Nixon sent he and Pat on a goodwill tour in uh, late, just after the, the Korean War, or the um, Korean truce was signed in July of 53. And he was gone from September into November of 1953. <coughs> and they visited about a dozen countries in Southeast Asia and in, in Africa and in, uh, and, in, and in Eastern Europe, even. Um, on September the 24th, 1955, he um, learned of Eisenhower's heart attack and he and his friend Bill Rogers um, escaped to Roger's home. He, 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 there were too many newspapers surrounding his home um, where they could begin to plan how Nixon should conduct himself. And there were a lot of people who wondered whether Nixon would get uh, out of hand because Eisenhower was very ill and Nixon, but, but he handled himself with a great deal of dignity. He didn't sit at Eisenhower's um, <clears throat> place at the table and uh, he handled the uh, the heart attack situation very, very well um, from September through into November of 1954. He was renominated for vice president on um, in uh, August of 1956. He was reelected on Tuesday, the November the 11th of 1956. In May of 1958, um, he visited South America, and that's when he was attacked by um, an anti-American, um, by anti-American demonstrators in Caracas, Venezuela. Um, on Friday, the 24th of, of um, August, 19 July, I'm sorry, 1959, he engaged with he engaged with Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev in the famous kitchen debates, which uh, were held in Moscow at, which were held in the USSR at, at the American Expedition, which was part of the, uh, the World's Fair that year. And he handled Khrushchev with, with, with a plum, and uh, mo most Americans were very, very proud of it. That was actually the, the time that um, I got to know who he was. And all I can remember and of course, I, I was I was only about 13 years old, but I remember Nixon saying upon his return, uh, the best part about going away was 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 coming back home. And I was one of these people who was really hooked on Nixon back then. On Thursday, July the 21st, 1950, he accepted the Republican presidential nomination with Henry Cabot Lodge as his running mate. Um, and of course. Uh, on November the 8th of 1960, he lost the election to John F. Kennedy by 118,000, 
575 votes, that's about 1% out of a total vote of uh, 69 million. Uh, on uh, Tuesday, January the 3rd of 1961, Nixon became only the second vice president in American history to um, certify, actually stand up before joint session of the House and Senate and certify the election of, uh, of his opponent. The first one to do that actually was, uh, was, was John Breckinridge, who was uh, <coughs> um, James Buchanan's vice president, the Democratic nominee back in 1860, and he certified the election for, of Abraham Lincoln. But Nixon certified Kennedy's election in a very close, uh, after a very close um, speculate, or at, after a very close uh, uh, election. Um, <clears throat> I am, um, we're getting down near the end, but there are two, there's several things that I, I need to say. I need to offer my personal perspective on a couple of things. Um, For the following reasons, I suggest that had Nixon been elected in 1960, rather than in 1968, his presidency would have been very, very different and much better. First, the presidential office in January of 1960 was highly respected by most Americans. Um, previous presidents had, over the past two decades, successfully brought the nation through a depression, through World War II, through Korea, and creditably, thus far, through the Cold War. So, most people, most, accordingly, most people, um, Although most people knew that presidents were, weren't perfect beings, most Americans were um, prone to accept uh, presidential authority. The second reason for that was that Richard Milhouse Nixon in 1961, he was only 48 years old, and he would have likely had the advice and support and counsel of um, ex-presidents named Eisenhower, and of course, even Herbert Hoover. Uh, and Hoover's um, uh, living uh, <coughs> Secretary of State, Christian Herder. Remember, he had, he had toured um, Western Europe with Herder back in, in 1947, actually <clears throat> cut his teeth on, on foreign policy matters. Other people were, um, that, that he would have looked to counsel would have been Henry Cabot Lodge, Senator Everett Dirksen, um, uh, Dean Acheson, and, uh, and many others. Uh, and I think they would have easily checked Nixon's less than um, admirable tendencies. Finally, the era of confrontation was in the future. It just didn't exist that much. The civil rights movement was very young, uh, and Nixon actually had um, had, a, had a pretty good relationship with Martin Luther King, 
Nixon didn't feel threatened by <clears throat> Ms. Dr. King in any way. Um, but this, this, this period of mass um, uh, civil disobedience, the generation gap, um, the Vietnam conflict, disaffection, they were all absent back then. Most of all, there still existed the principled wisdom of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Um, Mamie Eisenhower once observed, once observed that had Ike, if Ike had a disciple, that disciple was Richard Nixon. I think Ike would have kept a close eye on Dick Nixon. Now, again, that's only my speculation. I have nothing that, document, that documented that. Now, during Richard Nixon's five and a half years, although he would have a number of achievements, he allowed himself to become embittered by the distrust of millions of Americans. He surrendered to it. Thus, Nixon, who after all had volunteered to be president, and nobody makes you become president of the United States, surrendered to the national embitterment. Um, uh, even as he uh, pursued world peace, he began to hate people. He began, he, he began to hate people. And people's prerogative to question his authority. His triumphs in Vietnam, um, his triumphs, the, in, in, the, the Vietnamization of the war, bringing home uh, um, several <coughs> thousand people in time, thus Vietnam, Vietnamizing the war. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, his um, salt one with the Soviets in 1972. Um, his realistic recognition of communist China. Uh, his establishment of the environment of the environmental, yeah, of the environmental uh, protection administration, um, and. Um, even our victory in space over the Soviet Union, they just weren't enough. As I said before, anyone, no one makes you become president. He apparently, he just didn't recognize the time. And so he began to, he began to hate. This is what he told the White House staff. I'm gonna to try to get this on again. Hope, hopefully it'll work better than it did the last time. Um, but this is what he told the staff when he left the White House on the morning of August the 9th, 1974. We leave proud of the people who have stood by us and worked for us and served this country. We want you to be proud of what you've done. We want you to continue to serve in government if that is your wish. Always give your best, never get discouraged, never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you, 
that those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. Bob, I have one more thing I'd like to read. I, I don't think it'll take very long, and I'm holding it off. If, if, if we run out of time, <clears throat> I can certainly forego it, um, and I will write about it in next week's column. But in doing the research for this um, presentation, I learned something I didn't know, and it's just stunningly revealing. What do you want me to do after all that? After that, uh, <laughs> shall I talk about it? Should I take a minute to talk about it, or are we gone far enough? Would you ask him? Wants to read it? Ed, yeah, there's, there's time. Please read it. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I read a book. It's on Bard. Sorry, I don't have the, num the name of it. It is called Richard Nixon, The Life. It's by John Aloysius Farrell. Um, I'm going to kind of um, uh, paraphrase this, this, this a little bit <clears throat> and put it in perspective. Um, Richard Milhouse Nixon entered public life, in other words, he began his journey for peace at the dawn um, of an era of transition. The year 1947, well, the year 1946 was the first year of the atomic age. Um, through our participation in the United Nations, Americans, for the first time in their history, accepted our role on the world, on the international stage in international events. Thus, the American people became aware of the ambitions, and again, for the first time of other nations, they'd never been exposed to it before. Hence, they came to believe that the Soviet, expand that Soviet expansionism was a direct threat to our very sovereignty. They came to believe they came to believe that because they didn't know what the government already knew. In early 1946, and this is what I had not known, but in early 1946, the secret um, the secret U.S. government uh, Venona project broke the Soviet diplomatic code. Much you've, you've read, we've all read about the remember the man called intrepid and the breaking of the German code <clears throat> that was it, it was done in in Poland in 1938 39 or whatever it was. <clears throat> but anyway, broke we broke the diplomatic code, and through our ability to look into the so you know, to, to, to understand what, what Soviet leaders, even Stalin, were talking about. <clears throat> that the process of looking into this information revealed how little faith the Soviets had in the American communist 
Party. They regarded the, the American Communist Party as being merely a mush-headed group of um, dreamers and misfits. There was nobody of any administrative ability. They couldn't, they, they just didn't trust them. Consequently, they had no interest, whatever in it. You know, and this is, uh, it, it, I mean, absolutely amazing. Um, since they, since they could hardly, um, since they could har, har, hardly uh, um, announce that they'd broken the code, um, there rose in on our political right a cadre of hawks, men such as Martin Dyes. Father Cronin, who got Senator Joseph McCarthy started. And of course, young Nixon became a precursor that did little more than unnecessarily uh, frighten the American people. Of course, that didn't mean that there was no such thing as espionage. That didn't mean that there wasn't competition for markets and for military advantage in Europe. Um, one can't help but wonder who ultimately did know. Uh, likely President Truman knew, as did Ike when he became president as did John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and finally, President Richard Milhouse Nixon. They had to know. Consequently, for over 20 years, through Korea, through Vietnam, and through other conflicts, American citizens would suffer uh, uh, as high as 250,000 casualties from the battlefield. I consider that the most incredible information. I believe it, it's, in, it's in chapter seven of what's called Nixon the Light. It's on Bard. You can get it. Bob, thank you. Oh, no, no, I'm well, Ed, that's incredible. And uh, what is the name of the book? Please take one more time. It's called Richard, uh, uh, yeah, Richard Nixon, The Life. Okay, on Bard. Okay, yeah. um, I know uh, the hour grows late in the East, but let's give people a chance if there are any questions from anyone. This is just fabulous. What a great discussion. And uh, any questions, give your name and ask a question. Hi, Bob, it's Tim Cummings. I have a question. Tim, go uh, ahead. Ed, great presentation. Uh, I wanted to ask you about another book, if you've read, because there's been a lot of books on Nixon. Uh, and this one's also on Bard, and it's by a guy named um, Evan Thomas. It's called Being Nixon, A Man Divided. And his basic thesis was that Nixon, um, in a lot of ways, was not suited to be uh, was not suited to be president. He was an introvert. He was very anxious. He was very um, shy. He was very awkward. 
<clears throat> but at the same time, you know, he he wanted it, and that he was he, he there were two parts of him. There was a kind of a darker side of Nixon, and then there was the side of Nixon that was really wanted to do great things and really wanted to you know change the world. And I was wondering if you if you knew of that book or if you knew of that thesis and what you thought of it. Let's see what Ed well, has. I haven't read the I haven't I haven't read the book, um, although I've heard of it, and I didn't realize that Bart that that Bart that Bart has it. And I, but I'm going to get it and read it. That's that's for sure. You know, I I, I told um, and I believe she's on with us tonight. I told a, a, a lady by the name of Kathy that I you know <laughs> earlier that that I once loved Nixon, but he screwed me. I loved Richard Nixon for a long, long time, and I refused to believe you know a lot of the things that that liberals said about him and so forth. Um, but the Saturday Night Massacre was just too much. I mean, you, you couldn't, I couldn't pretend after that, 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 that he ought to remain president. You know, it just, and, I mean, that was the thing. Um, in fact, I, I, it's one of the reasons that I left the Republican Party. I, used to, I was very moralistic politically back then. And um, the Republicans, you know, had feet of clay. Now, not, not that the Democrats are a lot better, but these, but the Republican Party and people like Mr. Nixon had advertised them as being morally superior to other people, which was why they were such good Republicans. So that's why I became a Jimmy Carter Democrat, and I still am. Um, but uh, yeah, I want to read that book. I didn't realize it was on Bart. Boy, um, I'll look for it. I want to add, Ed, I was teaching government and history then. And even though I did not support Mr. Nixon, I mean, I didn't hate him. I said, I cannot believe this. How naive I guess I was. I cannot believe that my president would engage in Watergate. And I don't want to believe it because he, he wouldn't hurt the dignity of the office. And so we all did. It was Our hearts were broken. I, I did not cheer over Watergate. The president. I, I think that, that, goes, that addresses what I was saying in, the, in that one little commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, had I been present at a, at a meeting, say, between Nasser and Ben-Gurion, it wouldn't mm-hmm. surprise me at all if I learned that they were, that, you know, that their secret services were, 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 were considering <laughs> killing. Okay? It, it, it wouldn't have surprised me in the least. Uh, and so, you know, you know, Nixon, you remember that conversation he had with uh, David Frost? Yes. Yeah. And he said, well, if the president does it, why it, that, that makes it legal. And I think there was a part of, of Mr. Nixon that believed it. Mm. Um, it's, it's, um, and it's amazing. Um, but again, oh, man, I, I love the man. That, you know, it seemed to me the, that you know, he, and domestic, and you know, he hated to fire people. He hated confrontation with people. He didn't like to, you know, hurt you and, you know, in fact, he used to complain about Eisenhower. You know, he used to complain that Eisenhower, that he had to be Eisenhower's Pratt boy. You know, Eisenhower didn't fire Sherman Adams. I had to. Yeah. And, of course, we're even told today that, that Donald Trump, who makes Nixon look like a wonderful, like a priest, you know, <laughs> that Donald Trump doesn't like to fire people. You know, uh, you know, it, it stays away from 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 confrontation if he can. So I mean, there's a lot to think about. Yes. 
All right. I think we have time for one more question. The hour grows late. Anybody else? Well, Ed, we want to thank you. We can see the research in this. This is a tremendous discussion. And I'm, I'm going to hear this over and really, really, again, pay attention. And uh, this is just great. And Thank you so very much. Well, thank you. Was there one other person that wanted to ask a question? No? Okay. Well, I, actually, I'll, I'll ask one more, Bob, if I can. Okay. Um, just, a, just a comment, because you mentioned Martin Luther King, Ed, and um, I remember that um, – there was a, it was, I think, an, an American experience program about, the, about JFK, and King was in jail, yeah. and um, Nixon wanted to call Coretta and reach out and try to help get King out of jail before the election, and apparently the Eisenhower said no. And Kennedy ended up, get, Kennedy ended up getting all the black vote because he called Mrs. King and said he would do what he could, and that, and uh, they say that's you know part of the part of the reason that Nixon lost um, because well, you know, blacks had been historically republic had historically voted for Republican. That's right, and in fact, many of um, many many blacks in 1960 they were anti-Catholic. They were, I mean, they really didn't like Catholics at all, and um, it wasn't until that now. Remember that one of Nixon's supporters back in 1960 was Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson wouldn't support Kennedy. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, he was a Rockefeller Republican and remained so until 1968 when he decided to support the man who really deserved his support. And, of course, that was Hubert Humphrey. So uh, <coughs> it was um, – well, I heard, I heard this – story slightly different. I've heard that Nixon himself didn't make the call because he thought it would be presumptive. <laughs> that's that's what I heard. That means that you know may, maybe what you heard is more accurate. And maybe there maybe the Eisenhower people did. But I uh, but I, I, I'm inclined to think that you know, Nixon was very, very cautious about that stuff. It was it was the, the shy side of it. Uh, this is Don Queen. Go ahead, Don. Don. Yeah, uh, that's the first I've heard about breaking the diplomatic and diplomatic code. But I don't think it would have changed anybody. You had Dulles and all those guys were so in, so anti. They wouldn't believe. They, they had to believe that the Russians were a big threat. They were a big threat. Yeah. Well, they were a threat. But you see, I understand what the Red Scare was all about. The McCarran Act. Yeah. Uh, the Smith Act, it was whether or not <clears throat> you were disloyal to the United States because you were a member. Have, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I lived through that, yeah. They, uh, yeah, that you did. I'm sure you did. But, I mean, that was it, – it, it's, it's, it's not – as I said in my commentary, Don, there was competition. You know, um <laughs> Oh no! They, you know, but they didn't trust okay. the Communist Party at all. It's, yeah, the Russians didn't have faith in their members because they knew what they were. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I mean, they said, "God, God we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be saddled around the neck with that incompetent American Communist Party." And you know, and how did that get ended up costing? What was it? One million dollars in one night. 
Okay, I think we've got to end it here. I hate to do that, but we must move on. Ed, thank you so very much. Thank you for having me, Bob, and we'll, we'll do another one soon, okay? Okay, thank you, sir. Bye. Okay, thank, thank you. you. God bless everybody. Okay, bye-bye. Leave meeting button. 16077 cancel button. Leave meeting button.